What's the best trip you've ever gone on? About a decade ago, I was sitting in my office when one of my pastor friends in the Twin Cities called and asked, have you ever been to the Holy Land? I had no idea exactly what was going to happen, but his best friend from college was a professor at Princeton Seminary, and he was organizing a trip for 20 pastors. And so I had the chance in 2010 to spend three weeks in the Holy Land, and it was amazing to get a chance to walk where Jesus walked, to see the synagogue where Jesus taught, to see the the geography in the land, and the Bible really does come alive. But before we went there, I had a chance to visit Princeton University. Now, I'm not sure I had ever even been to New Jersey before that. I know I had never been to Princeton. But one of the intriguing parts of the East Coast is the amazing history you find almost everywhere. Princeton is no exception. The buildings were built in the 18th and the 19th century, and it feels much more like you're going to Europe to go to school than to most of the colleges in the States. And and Princeton is a trove of history. A Revolutionary War battle was fought. There, Some of the most famous men and women have taught there and studied there, but none of them are more famous than Albert Einstein. In the 1930s, Albert Einstein, living in Germany, began to recognize that the Nazi party was taking the country in a direction he had no interest in going. And so he immigrated to the States, and he settled at Princeton University, where he would live till 1955, when he would pass away. He moved into a very humble two-story house, and in that home, he entertained some of the world's most powerful and influential people. They debated mathematics and physics. They talked about philosophy and religion. And it's literally a who's who that came to talk with Albert Einstein. But there was one frequent visitor that didn't really look like the rest. A 10-year-old girl by the name of Emmy moved into the neighborhood, and as she began fifth grade math, she was struggling terribly. Fractions, long divisions, she didn't get it. When somebody said that there was a kind old man who was pretty good at mathematics. And so as a 10-year-old in the innocent, she went and knocked on the door, and she asked this kind old man if he could help her with her mathematics. He took her in, and he began to make her his tutor and he taught her and this went on several days until finally one of the neighbors came to Emmy's mom and said do you know that your daughter's bothering Professor Einstein she was embarrassed and she went and confronted her daughter and sure enough yes I've been going he's helping me with math and and their mother said don't you understand he has far more important things to do than to teach a 10 year old mathematics the mother a little embarrassed went back to the house knocked on the door, and when Albert Einstein answered with his white head go- have hair going everywhere, she was a bit taken back, couldn't really get out what she wanted to say, and finally he said, oh, you must be Emmy's mom. And she said, yes, and I'm so sorry. I, I-, I promise she won't be coming bother you again. And he said, ah, no. When a youngster desires to learn, it is my obligation to teach. You tell Emmy anytime she has a problem with mathematics. My door is always open. The image of the world's most foremost mathematician teaching a 10-year-old math seems mind-boggling. But may I suggest it's nothing compared to me entering the very throne room of the sovereign of the universe? 
we have for the last year been going through the book of Romans and we've made it through some of the hardest passages in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I hope that you are profiting from the book of Romans. But I would like to set the book of Romans aside for at least a couple weeks. We're at an interesting time, a crossroads in our church's life. We find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic that rather than getting better seems to be getting worse. We're at a point in our church's life where we are trying to ask questions. Yesterday morning, uh, the leadership gathered, and we began to plow through some of the questions. What exactly are we looking for? Are we looking for anyone? And if so, what? May I suggest the answer will never be found in our intellect alone. In fact, I'm convinced that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much energy and time we put into it, we will never come to the correct conclusion on our own. And so for the month of January, I want to pause our study of Romans, and I want to spend the month contemplating prayer. And I'd like to do so by turning first this morning to the book of Psalms. If, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at some of these great prayers. This morning, we're going to listen to David. Next week, we're going to listen to Daniel. Uh, the following week, we're going to be with Paul, and we're going to conclude January by the great prayer from Jesus himself. But in Psalm, you'll notice that this is a picture of my Bible, and if you look really carefully, it does benefit you to sit closer when you get really small words on the screen. But you may notice that the book of Psalms is really divided into five major books. And in the first book, the first 41 Psalms, all of them have titles but four. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 don't have a title because almost everyone would suggest that they are introductory psalms, not so much to the book 1, but to the book of Psalms itself. But beginning in Psalm 3, every single psalm has a title. Sometimes they're very simple, like Psalm 3 is the title of Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. But you'll notice that Psalm 4, Psalm 5, as you turn the pages, all of the psalms until you come to Psalm number 10 have a title. And almost all scholars would say the reason why Psalm 10 doesn't have a title is because it was originally part of Psalm 9. And, and when the editors came and divided up the Bible, they, for whatever reason, decided Psalm 9 was too long, and they cut it in half and made Psalm 9 and 10. But as you continue through the rest of that book, you'll notice the next time you don't see a title is when you come to Psalm 33. Why doesn't Psalm 33 have a title? Well, there's been a lot of debate as to exactly why, but I would suggest it's not because Psalm 33 is part of Psalm 32. But Psalm 32 is this incredible psalm of confession. It's David falling on his face before his God, following his atrocious sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. And in Psalm 32, he pours his heart out, and he concludes the psalm with an amazing statement. He says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. What does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? What exactly does it look like to sing to the, the heavenly Father who has forgiven us? I think Psalm 33 answers that question. And so for the few moments we have this morning, I'd like to look at this incredible psalm of praise. And let me just begin by reading the entirety to you. Beginning in verse number one, David writes these words, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. 
For the Lord, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into the jars. He puts the deep into the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the heart of all who consider everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strengths, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him and those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. In Psalm 33, David is really going to praise God First of all, for his character. Second of all, for his creation. And finally, for his control. We could easily spend hours on each of these, but David begins by listing four of God's characteristics. He he says that he is right and true. The idea of the word right really could be translated, and some of the translations do translate it, uprightness. The idea is that God is entirely straightforward and never deceives. We live in a time when, irregardless of which side of the political aisle you fall upon, everybody seems to have an agenda, and the truth they share always pushes an agenda. In fact, it seems as if facts have almost become a tool by which we can deceive people into believing what we wish they would believe. And it's really hard to know who to trust. God never deceives. God is straightforward in all that he says. He isn't trying to to get you to believe. In fact, he simply states the facts and lets them settle where they will because he is right and he's true and he's faithful. Maybe the distinguishing characteristic between God and humanity is that he is always faithful And we seldom are. I don't care who you look to. They will disappoint you at some point. Humanity is incapable of being completely faithful. And yet David says God is fully faithful. I I don't have time this morning to chase this nearly as much as I would like. But let me just travel to, to one passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a fascinating passage because Paul goes back to the Old Testament and he says that everything you read in the Old Testament were written for us to understand how it is that God desires us to live. And then he goes to one particular place in which the nation of Israel commits what God would view as these four atrocious sins. The sins of idolatry, of immorality, 
of testing God and of complaining. In fact, he seems to be going back to the Old Testament, to the the time of the Exodus. And while we certainly don't have time, there was this passage where the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt and God sends Moses to the top of Mount Sinai. And there he enters the presence of God, the lights, the flashing, the lightning, and everyone knows God is on Mount Sinai talking to Moses. And at 40-day mark, God says, get up and go down, Moses. The sound of idolatry and immorality is in the midst. And Moses comes down and he finds the nation of Israel couldn't wait 40 days. I don't know what all to make of it, but the Old Testament seems to really get caught up in numbers, and one of the numbers is 40. And it seems extremely likely that 40 days was the length that God had always intended Moses to be on Mount Sinai. And yet they couldn't wait 40 days for God. I wonder how many times is God's faithfulness about to be displayed and I get impatient. No, no, God, I can't wait 40 days. Do you know how long 40 days is? That would almost be March. I can't wait that long. I mean, it seems mind-blowing, especially when you consider the fact that that Mount Sinai was uh, ablaze with the presence of God. Everybody could have looked at the mountain and had seen God was there, and yet, no, no, we'd like to have a God like Egypt, one we can touch and see. God was faithful, the people, We're impatient. God is not only faithful, but he goes on and he says that he is righteous and he's just. And he is unfailing in his love. I want to keep moving because there's a lot that I would like to talk about this morning. But Paul, Paul, we're not in Romans, in Psalm. David says that not only do I praise God for his character, but I also take time to praise him for his creation. Maybe my house is really different, but I can't tell you how many times over this holiday I would enter a room and find five or six people with their heads buried into one of these. Maybe, maybe that never happens at your house. And, and I have to admit, I am amazed by cell phones. It, it is truly amazing to me that I can, through modern technology, look into this screen and interact with somebody on the other side of the world in real time. It blows my mind the many things that you can do. I, I, I can, I gotta be careful because if I say the wrong words, it will answer the question when I don't even wanna ask it, but you can ask it almost any question. It will give you an answer. It is not always right, but it'll give you an answer. These things are amazing. But I fear we spend so much time with these that we get amazed by humanity and what man is able to do. When maybe we should be spending a whole lot more time outside and examining what God has been able to do. 
In fact, David is going to say, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts in the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. I don't think David ever got past his days as a shepherd boy gazing off into the the vast hugeness of space and saying oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens when i consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place what in the world is man that you care at all about him I, I really think one of the tremendous privileges of living where you and I do is we live in a place where we can easily at night go stand on the porch and apart from all of the light pollution that is filled with so many metropolitan areas and gaze into the enormity of space and begin to contemplate that they are billions and trillions and godzillions and every other bigger word you can come up with years away. And God spoke all of it into existence. In Psalm 19, David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display his his honor. In Psalm 50, David writes, he summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens proclaim his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Can I challenge you to take a few moments sometime this week and just contemplate the enormity of God's creation? Philip Yancey, in one of his books, shares a story he had. He traveled to New Zealand, and while in New Zealand, he had a wonderful chance to go on a little dinghy out in the Pacific Ocean looking for whales. And he shares this story that as they were watching, a sperm whale swam up to his little dinghy. And I can't begin with even the high-definition TVs explain to you the enormity of a sperm whale. The tongue on a sperm whale weighs more than an elephant. They are tremendous animals. And he said he watched as they swam a little bit and then suddenly they were gone. A sperm whale can swim up to a mile and a half deep in the ocean in pressures that would crush any of us. And they are just so spectacular. But then they were gone. And then flew an albatross. An albatross is the largest flying bird. And the guide began to talk about the albatrosses. Their wingspan goes up to 12 feet long. They can exert the same amount of energy to fly 600 miles that it takes a sparrow to fly across the street. They cover more than 600 miles a day, sometimes traveling up to 75 miles an hour. Their beaks are amazing. They have desalinization plants built right in their beak. They can swoop down and take water in, and through membranes and filters, they filter out all of the salt and only take fresh water. They literally can stay at sea for two years at a time, never landing. In fact, about the only time they do land is when they return to feed their young. 
They are one of the few birds that can sleep while flying. They have a little sensor someplace in their beak that allows them to sense the moving of the winds and know exactly how to fly. In fact, even today, scientists are flummoxed by how this creature is so amazingly sophisticated that it can fly tens of thousands of miles in its life, barely flapping its wings. It's not because the albatross is great. It's because the one who made the albatross is great. Amen. And David's point is that God simply spoke and everything came to be. The more time we spend with his creation, the more in awe we ought to be of the creator. And as David pauses to praise God, we could spend hours talking about his character. We could spend hours contemplating his creation. But he ends with God's control. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purpose of his heart through all generations. 1 Kings 22 is a fascinating story. I, I don't know if you remember it. It's a story of King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. Ahab was king of Israel. And, and they got together and King Ahab said, I'd like to go to war. And Jehoshaphat said, well, have you uh, talked to God about it? And so uh, King Ahab brings in his prophets. They're all false prophets. And Jehoshaphat said, no, no, do you have any prophets of Jehovah? And he says, I have one, but I hate him because all he ever does is give me bad news. And Jehoshaphat said, well, I'd still like to hear him. And so he comes in. And he says to Ahab, if you go to war, you will not return alive. You will die. And so Ahab decides he's going to test God. He says, I got a plan, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. I, I don't know what he was thinking, but Ahab's plan is this. How about you dress up like me, ride my chariot, and go to war? And so he goes off to war, and the enemy is given the command, I don't want you to chase anybody but the king of Israel. And they see Jehoshaphat, and they assume that's Ahab, and they run after him, and they realize it's Jehoshaphat, and they don't want him. And in frustration, one of his soldiers takes and launches an arrow into the air, and it flies through the air and strikes Ahab in the one spot in his armor that he's not protected, and he dies. No one foils the plans of the Almighty. Now, I do want to caution you. There are times when it looks like it. David is chosen to be king of Israel. And for more than a decade, he runs for his life from Saul. And I am confident had you come to David any time in that first decade after being chosen to be king, he would say, is God really going to do this? Daniel would be taken from his home in Jerusalem and brought to the pagan center of the world in Babylon, forced to learn a new language, forced to learn new rituals, forced to learn all of these things Babylon taught. And yet few in the history of humanity have had a greater influence in two of the world's superpowers as Daniel would become a personal consultant to both King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and King Cyrus of Persia. But no place is it seen clearer than in the life of Jesus. The perfect, sinless son of God comes to earth and we kill him. And I am confident 
that Satan was convinced he had foiled the plans of the Almighty. And yet it was through that death that you and I find salvation. My guess is some of you are in places this morning where you really wonder, is God's plan going to work? No one foils the plans of God. But never think that God works on your timetable. He works on his own. But he praises God for, first of all, that that he is sovereign. But then if you notice down in verse number 13, I, I don't know if you notice how many times he says the word all. He sees all mankind. He watches all who live. He forms the heart of all who consider everything. David wants us to understand that there's only one who sees everything. See, the problem we all have is we have very limited information. In fact, one of the biggest problems with our judicial system is that we don't see everything. And so we can never truly know exactly what happened. That's never a problem for God. God knows everything you're thinking right now and you will do today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life. Because he is absolutely omniscient. I've gone back to the story of Job so many times I decided not to go back this morning, but one of the things about Job that amazes me is God takes Job and shows him the complexity of the universe and his answer as to why this is happening. Job, you will never understand it because you don't have all the information. Trust the one who does. God is omniscient, but God is loving. David says no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strengths, it cannot save, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. I have to think David is going back to the story of the Exodus when the shepherd comes out of the, uh, the wilderness and he goes into the throne room of the most powerful man on the planet and says, let my, my people go, and Pharaoh laughs at him. Who is this God that I'm going to listen? And there begins this incredible fight between Pharaoh and God, and it's really not much of a contest. These series of ten plagues come, and they destroy, and they defeat each of the gods of the pantheon of Egypt. Finally, the great trial comes and God prepares his people with what we call the Passover supper as the lamb is slain and the blood of the lamb is painted on the doorpost and where that blood was found, God passes over but everyone else is killed and finally Pharaoh says, go. But it isn't long until his heart is hardened and he takes the most powerful army in the planet against an unarmed group of people And it was no contest because the greatest armies of the world cannot hold a candle to the sovereign of the universe. See, no king, no army, no warrior has a chance against the Almighty. God is sovereign and he is amazingly loving. What do I take from Psalm 33? Can, can I just leave you with two thoughts? Can I challenge you to begin each day with praising him? 
I, I think most of you know that Peter Silseth is one of my best friends. We talk almost every week. He's my accountability partner. We, we kind of live life together. And the last couple weeks, he had been talking about this app he had. It's called the Prayer Mate app. And finally, I was curious enough that I decided that I would go ahead and download the Prayer Mate app, and I must admit, I was really impressed. It comes, and when you open it up, you can choose a number of lists, and you can go online, and these are the lists on my phone. You go, and you want to add a list, and when you go, there's all of this devotional stuff you can add so that you can have a devotion available every single day. But if you go clear down to the bottom, there is this series of options that are called prayer packs from the Bible. They begin with 70 prompts for praise, as well as prayers from both the Old and the New Testament and praying, for instance, one of the 42 prayers that Paul prays. And, and so since then, every single morning, I have begun praying and I begin with a prayer from the New Testament. I, I move to a prayer from Paul. And here's what I'm getting at. There's a prayer option that prompts me to praise God. Psalm 16 says, you are present to protect us, guiding us through, straight through this life to eternal joy. And it gives me something concrete and tangible to praise God for before I begin my actual requests. Can I challenge you to consider finding prayer mate and beginning every single morning with a praise? See, in theory, it's not very hard to do that. But unless you are way different than I am, practice is a whole different thing than theory. I need concrete reminders to do the things I should. I want to challenge you to begin each day this week with a praise. Before you get to a single request, before you get to a single confession, that's next Sunday, before you get to any type of, of supplication to pause and to contemplate the greatness of the one you are praying to. Amen. To simply pause and adore him. But then secondly, I'd encourage you to trust him. And I must admit, this is really uncomfortable for me. Because I would argue that David is going to tie waiting inextricably to trusting. I don't like to wait. I want everything to be done tomorrow. I want next Sunday to be able to introduce you to the next pastor who's taking Paul's place. I, I want all of my illnesses and your illnesses to be gone by tomorrow morning. But I am convinced that at the core of trust is the willingness to wait as long as it takes. This morning in Sunday school, John was talking about the book of Revelation, about end times, about the rapture of the church. Do I really believe that? Am I patiently waiting for it? Or it's been 2,000 years, it can't possibly happen now, right? See, I, I, I'm convinced that one of the qualities that proves you trust someone is that when they tell you they'll do something, 
you are willing to wait until they get it done. The person you don't trust, you go ahead and do it yourself. Do you really trust God? If you do, you're going to be willing to wait for him, to put your hope in him, because he is our help and our shield. And then our hearts will rejoice. Father, I I thank you for the chance this morning to go to Psalm 33 and what an incredible reminder it is of exactly how we can and should be praising you. God, I, I, I do pray that as we move through this uncertain time in our church, uncertain time in our nation, that we would truly bathe our lives, our ministry, our church in prayer. God, I I pray that we would begin it with praise. Thank you that you are the sovereign Lord who loved enough to come. Thank you, for it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.